Hi everyone, this is International Society of Hypertension Podcast. I'm Associate Professor Francine Marques from Monash University, Australia, and my co-host is Dr. Augusto Montesano from the University of Glasgow, Scotland. Welcome back everyone to our podcast. And today we'll be talking with Dr. Brandy Wynn, who is Assistant Professor in Internal Medicine in the Division of Nephrology and Hypertension, and adjunct assistant professor at the Department of Nutrition and Integrative Physiology at the University of Utah, United States. Brandy is a committed ECR advocate and serves as chair of the Training Advocacy Committee from the American Heart Association Calcium Hypertension. And at the International Center of Hypertension, she is the chair of the New Investigators Committee. She also served as a member of many other committees at the American Physiology Society, the American Heart Association Council on Kidney and Cardiovascular Diseases, and American Society of Pharmacology and Experimental Therapeutics. At the ISH, or ISH, NIC, Brandy is leading a stellar team of early career researchers and have created many different opportunities for many other early and mid-career researchers. And with that, I welcome you, Brandy, to our chat, and I'm looking forward to talk to you about many experiences and mentorship in your career. Thank you so much, Gudo. And for for the record, um, this is like Gudo, and this is like our fourth time starting this podcast because Gudo and I have known each other for quite a long time. So we're going to try to keep the giggles down so um, you can actually hear what we're saying. <laughs> I know, but it's good because it's more or less like us having tea. So you see like tea time in the UK, probably, <laughs> well, not the tea time as they mean here, but like probably tea time back where you are. So be a good uh, old Paul's uh, chat. Sure. <laughs> not old, young Paul's. Ouch, ouch. No. So, Brandy, just to get started, can you tell us your story? Like how did you start in research and how did you get involved in hypertension? Wow, that's a really loaded question. So I am originally from Eastern North Carolina, which is an itty bitty place. Um, Williamson is a, is a pretty uh, pretty small place, a village, so to speak, um, near the coast of North Carolina. <clears throat> it's very rural. And, um, you know, there were no professors in my family. So it's not like I exactly had an idea of what this job was. So I went a full 45 minutes west to college, um, to a small, to a, um, small town, smaller town, um, called Greenville, North Carolina, where I went to East Carolina university. And I, like so many other people, I had essentially a idea of like four different career fields, right. Uh, you know, teacher, uh, policeman, doctor, you know, essentially those, those are the four that you grow up knowing about ballerina, you know, I was going to be a ballerina until I was told I was way too short. Um, and so you grow up, you know, with these ideas and then I, I get to college and then I take classes like a language of, of classes. And in learning that, I actually found that um, I really, really liked science. I, I wasn't big on science in high school. I, I was a cheerleader. So, you know, I took the classes and you know, there wasn't a, a big focus in my family on, um, you know, academics, so to speak, but I did really well in it and I enjoyed it. And um, in trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up, 
I was working at an optometrist office. I actually had four jobs in college. And one of my jobs is I was working at an optometrist office on Saturday afternoons. And I was the poor person giving those glaucoma tests to unsuspecting patients who were not expecting someone who was wholly unqualified to, to give this test. And in comes a postdoc from a school of medicine, a Brody School of Medicine. He comes in and he actually worked with a PI in the physiology department. And the poor thing, I grilled him and must have asked him 40 questions that he obviously didn't want to answer. And come to find out, I got the names of some contacts in Brody School of Medicine. So I thought it would just be simple just to call these professors up and ask them for a job. Well, Gudo is laughing. You can't see this. Gudo is laughing because he can imagine. I essentially called the equivalent of some very well-known professors in our in the department and just asked them, told them I didn't have any experience, but I wanted a job because I wanted to learn. You can imagine it didn't go over well, but after the fourth phone call or so to one of the professors, he let me come in he gave me a job. I had student financial aid. So I was a federal work study student. He gave me a job and um, I have no idea what possessed him to let me use actually do experiments, but somehow he actually allowed me to do this. And that was sort of my first experience. So it was actually a neuroscience lab, which is a little crazy because if you've heard talk to me, you probably heard that the brain isn't really my favorite, favorite organ. <clears throat> and um, and so from there afterwards, I, I went to seminars and I listened, I spoke to speakers when, who they, when they came to the department and I just really liked physiology. So after I graduated, um, I needed a job. <clears throat> I couldn't think about going to school. I needed a job. I needed to work. And um, one of the other professors in the department, he gave me a job and it was um, in a pulmonary lab and his name was Michael Van Scott. And he was really, he was really great. Um, he probably thought I was a little too talkative and not quite focused. And I can probably guarantee you he was correct. Um, but I was still sort of feeling my way around. And the idea of working somewhere else other than Target um, was sort of outside of even my thought ranges. I had always thought that I was going to go to medical school because I, I knew I could handle it. But, you know, there's a big difference between thinking that you can do something and then actually getting the opportunity to do it. And um one day he asked me what I wanted to do when I finished. And I essentially told him, well, I need to work. And he said, well, what if I paid you to get your master's? And I was like, that's crazy. Are you serious? What? He was like, yeah, what if, you know, what if I paid you? What if I gave you a stipend so you wouldn't have to work that much? You get a master's and, um, you know, then you do something else. And I was like, mind blown. That's crazy. People get paid to go to school. So of course I was like, heck yeah, sign me up. So then I start and it was really great. I really enjoyed all my classes. That was probably the first time that I had been able to go to school and actually focus on school because I worked so much in undergrad. I, I you know, I don't, I hate to say this out loud. It's not like I attended many of the classes, you know, I read the books and took the, took the exams, but in my master's, I actually, I went to the classes, I went to all the classes, and, and I found that I really liked all the subject area. And because I had one of some of my advisors at undergrad weren't exactly um, paying attention to what I was taking, I actually took classes that I shouldn't take as an undergrad, 
like for example, endocrinology and reproductive physiology, which was sort of how I got involved in it. So when I graduated, I didn't have as many master's classes left to take. So actually um, he enrolled me in the, one of the first year medical student classes, medical physiology. And I really, really, really liked that class. I liked it so much and um, I picked it up really easy. It was a, it was an easy class for me and I really enjoyed it. And um, so that was, that was how it got involved. And so from there I applied to PhD programs and um, I researched different programs who had um, areas of hypertension because my master's work was in immunology, was actually looking at gene regulation with cytokines and um, allergic asthma. And I had sort of become really interested in immunology. And um, so that's how I went to Medical College of Georgia. Went to see a few different PIs, ended up in a few labs and, you know, and here, here I am. It's sort of a random story, but that's, that's how it, that's how it happened. And, and it's good. That was like a lot of persistence. Can you imagine like after one and two calls and you get the nose, like a lot of people would stop there, right? Like don't try like the fourth one or something, but like you were determined that you wanted to, uh, to do something like you wanted to get something. I just felt like at that point in time in my life, you know, everything was a struggle, right? You know, you're in college, you're working, you know, your goal is to get to the end point and I needed a job. And I also needed a job that paid better than the clothing store at the mall for all you young ones out there. I think I made like $4 an hour. It was not good money. Right. So I was really looking for something that maybe would pay a little bit more, but I had no experience whatsoever. And um, I remember one of the secretaries, administrative assistants who worked in the department, when I showed up and told her that I was interviewing, and I put that in air quotes, when I was interviewing for a position with this professor, I won't say his name out loud in case, in case he Googles, but um, when I was um, interviewing for this position, her eyes got big and she was like, really? <laughs> How did you get in touch with him exactly? And I was just like, I called him. <laughs> It was a little, a little sounding crazy. And now I recognize how crazy it was. But you know, at that time, people talk about first gen and talk about not understanding the process. I didn't understand the process. For me, that seemed completely normal. Let me just call a bunch of department chairs and see who'll give me a job. That seemed absolutely normal for me. And that was that, <laughs> that was what I did. I was sort of um, hell bent on um, at least getting to speak to somebody. So that was my, that was my goal is to make sure that I can get to speak to someone and they answer the phone. And that was, that was sort of my step in. Um, not exactly a normal, a normal process, but that was, that was how it happened. It's a good story. So <clears throat> Brandy, like you are the chair of like two very important uh, committees that represent early career and mid career uh, researchers one in the States and one international with the, the uh, ISAs and the investigators committee. So do you think that sitting in committees in scientific societies is important or uh, to people's careers or was important to your career development? And if yes or no, how, that, how do you think that plays a role in one's uh, career development? No, I think it was awful. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so in case you didn't know, Gudo actually was the, um, he was, he's the past chair for the same committee that I'm a chair of. And, and I, I, think I, I inspired really, you, right? You inspired, <laughs> you were my inspiration. 
Gouda was also part of my scientific family too. So we can, we can call him part of, part of my role model team. But um, my, my PhD mentor, Clinton Webb, he was very, very supportive of students becoming involved and it just seemed normal. It seemed like that's what you were supposed to do. At the time I started joining his lab, he, the next year, he was the chair for Council of Hypertension for AHA. And so it just seemed really normal that people were getting involved. And of course, coming from my background, I was like, wow, this is really cool. You know, you get to do all these things and you get to chair things and wow and awesome. And so the um, when he nominated me for a couple, I believe he never really said that, but I think he was the one who nominated me for one of the APS committees. The very first one I was on was a women in physiology committee through the American Physiological Society. And I really enjoyed it. I liked working with people and I felt like we could get things done to actually have change and actually move things towards um, um, to helping, helping those of at that time, those of those that were like me. I thought that was a really good thing. I sort of say, you know, break the rules from the inside. It's a lot easier to crack the egg from the inside than it is coming from the outside. And that was sort of my opinion. Um, has sort of stayed my opinion the whole time. So I think it's been really great. Um, I probably, after you reading that list, I feel like maybe I should write more grants and be on less committees, but that was just sort of, sort of the way it happened. And it, it's been re really great for me. I've met tons of people. I've had lots of opportunities. I've made new collaborations with, with investigators all around the world that I wouldn't have ever, you know, probably hadn't met before or wouldn't have met before. And, um, you know, met a lot of really great people who are other chairs of committees. I, I really just can't speak highly enough of it. You know, we all have a tendency to complain about it when things don't go our way. But yet, you know, are you really putting the effort in to try to fix a situation? Um, and, and the only way to fix it is to, to give up some time, you know, and to serve on these committees. So I, I think it's really great. I think it's great for me personally. And I, I hope that some of the things that um, that we're doing now and riding on the coattails of Dr. Montezano, I hope that, you know, some of those things that we're doing will, will help the, the future generations make it a little bit easier, a little bit more palatable, so to speak. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure. <clears throat> and, and that's a good thing about you. And I think like uh, you are a very good person to work with. And I, I was very lucky to have you in my committee. Uh, when I was uh, leading uh, that amazing team, I think like uh, the team that I had, I feel like was the best one. I know, but was a very good team, very active people, very like uh, people like with like great ideas. And you were the one who helped me a lot to establish the Stephanie Watts uh, Award. So without you, I don't think like the award would happen because it was a lot of negotiation, negotiation with the AHA, negotiations with the uh dsi and you were able to do it and that's something that i was extremely happy with because i was like gosh finally we were able to do something that will help somebody's career and that was my dream so like thank you like you made my wow. dream come come true came true and i was like i'm super proud of it for all of us i'm like yes we made hopefully you know the past winners i think we got three so far right we yeah. i think we made like a positive um, influence on their lives. I'm really happy for that. Uh, too bad that like, too bad that we can never, we will never apply or never get it because then like, you know, yeah. conflict of interest, but it, it was amazing. <clears throat> yes. No. I, I really would, I really would like to have that award now. So if there's anybody listening who would like to donate um, 
that money to DSI, I will, I will gladly, gladly accept it. You know, I think the best thing of some of the best things about working, you know, being able to do that with you is, uh, you know, Stephanie Watts, and she was uh, on your podcast a, a while back, I think she might take the the award for the longest, <laughs> longest interview. But, you know, being able to work with people like her, I mean, she's just like a big ray of sunshine and a hug all wrapped up into one, you know, being able to work with really great PIs uh, like her, it's, you know, it really, it, it's, it's really worth the effort on our behalf, even if we don't actually get to benefit from that, you know, having that kind of, you know, day-to-day interaction with, you know, with people like her and, other people in the committees, you know, Dr. Fink and, um, Dr., you know, all of them, they're just, they're yeah. just all really great. So, exactly. so yeah. Renzi, now let's concentrate a little bit of your mentoring, uh, and mentorship, uh, part of your career progress, let's say. Um, so if you need to define your mentorship experience in one word, which word would that be? Is that, let me make sure I understand. I can see Gudo's trying to wrangle me back. I'm trying, probably like hurting like a lot of cats here. He probably feels like this interview was hurting a lot of cats. Are you saying that how mentoring my relationship with my previous mentors or how I mentor? No, or like, um, well, we can do both. But like, let's think about mentorship as one experience, you know, like okay. you, you as a mentee. Like, let's think about all the help that you received and people that, gave advice like it could be one or two or three like the entire experience try to define in one word I would probably say family (laughs) 2.0 oh no I can't believe like that was my word and I didn't Ah! go interview (laughs) now I need to change my word no oh no I took it I took it as mine (laughs) I I think I'm going to record my interview and ask Francine like put before Brandy (laughs) So now, you can like, record it and put a different date if you like <laughs> and just sort of put like a footnote she took my word <laughs> wait you said 2.0 so you can say family 1.0 oh, no, yeah. <laughs> no, why family well I think um you know again I don't have tons of it's not like I've been in this game for that long, but, um, you know, for my, for my masters, I, I think, um, even though he probably thought I was off my rocker a lot, he really, he really wanted me to succeed. He went out of his way to offer things that, you know, that wasn't on the table. Who does that? Right. At that point in time, my dad couldn't even afford to, to help me in that capacity. And then, you know, for my PhD, Clinton, you know, he, you know, Dr. Webb, he paid for, you know, paid for us to travel and to go see things. And, you know, even to this day, I email him, uh, you know, probably more than is, is probably should be allowed, right. To, to ask him questions, to ask him, you know, to borrow things to, you know, just for everything. And he's still nominating me for, you know, for things for editorial boards and, and just for all that. And then when you think about not just that, but all the people in his laboratory, you know, Fernandinha and um, Fernanda Giacchini and Fernando Carnero and, you know, all these group of people who really, they, you know, they were students at the time and Hida Tolstez and um, in Brazil, you know, they were, they were really great. They really supported, um, supported everyone and supported me. So, and I still love them to death. You know, I still message them. So I, I do consider them a, a type and I call it family 2.0 because 
I remember on Twitter, there was this whole discussion about, oh, your work isn't your family, blah, blah, blah. And I recognize that. But as someone who doesn't have a lot of family, I can just say that for me, I consider them, them like a, like a family, you know, I would do, um, you know, anything that help in any way, you know, in any capacity I could. And I, I feel like, um, you know, still the same. And even with my post-op mentors, you know, Robert Hoover and Douglas Eaton, I bugged the crap out of them to, <laughs> to ask them to do things, you know, and to help them. And I, I really do feel like it, it is a, like an adoption process almost, you know, you, you adopt them and it's like, you can't get rid of them for forever. And now that I become a mentee, I have my mentees, you know, they text me and email me and <clears throat> ask me to do things years after, you know? And so I do, I think it's, you know, it's like I adopted them and, you know, for, they're going to be every so often have to come home and ask, ask for a favor um, every few years. And, and I'm okay with that. So that's why, that's why I chose that. Is that the why you would have chosen that? Gouda? Yeah, no, it is, it is exactly what you said. It's like, because I also came from a family that like, uh, it doesn't have anybody in the, in the field that I work now. Uh, and I felt lost a lot of times. And if I didn't have like, you know, uh, Hita or Rian, uh, I, I think I wouldn't be able to achieve what I did because I have like, you know, these strong females that guide me, guided me through, uh, through the path. Plus other people as well, like people in the department at the University of Sao Paulo, like the other professors, like people were very good to me. And, and it is to me a family, even though people say like, oh, people where your work's on a family. I couldn't care less because I'm like, it is. It's the family that I chose and the family that came and helped me. It doesn't mean that my mom, my dad, or, you know, people that are close to me, that I was, I, that we share blood is not important. It just means that, like, I have, uh, I, I'm able to make uh, strong connections with other people that are not blood related. I agree. And, you know, actually, I think I'm closer. And I said family 2.0, because I, I think in some ways, I'm closer to some of the people that that I am but to a lot of my family. And also too, it's like instant connection, right? So, mm -hmm. you, know, uh, you know, like, for example, you, I remember meeting you at the meeting, and you were like the long lost cousin I had heard about and never met before, you know, and the same thing when Dylan, you know, Berger um, at University of Ottawa, you know, it's, um, you know, it's like you hear about these people and you're like, you meet them, you're like, yay, we're related. We can do it. You know, you feel it's a sense of freedom almost, you know, and the same yeah. thing with you know, Rian Toyas and all these different professors. You have this, you feel like you have this like instant connection. All you had to do was add water and it was there. And I think it's, it's really great. And I had so, to say, I love when Stephanie, she, she answers my email or she writes me like, hi, brother. Like she calls me brother. <laughs> and I'm like, I love it. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Like I even blush. It was like, she doesn't see, but I blush like, <laughs> so cute. You know, I would really encourage anyone listening to this the next time you see Stephanie Watt, just give her a hug. It's like, even if you're not a hugger, it's just like you can almost feel the unicorns and the rainbows coming down from the ceiling. It is, it's really a glorious thing. So yeah. I would really, of course, at the next meeting, there's going to be a whole lot of people coming up to hug Stephanie. Lining up. We can charge. <laughs> Let's make like yeah. a, 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 a queue and then we charge and, uh, Exactly. $10. <laughs> exactly. And then we can make, we can call it a donation to, to tack and she'll, she'll gladly, <laughs> she so, will gladly be okay with it. So Brandy, now, like, again, thinking about uh, mentorship, do you think is important? Was it important to you? Is that the end of the question? That's it? 
Yeah, like it, it is important or not? Like I know your answer, but like tell us why is important. Like, okay. Oh yeah, obviously important. I mean, I, you know, how many? I I can't think of any one thing that I would have done by myself. I I you know I read a lot of things about people saying that they did this and they did that, but I honestly can't think of one thing that I have achieved in the past. I'm not going to tell you when I graduated because then that would give you my age, but I would just say, I cannot think of one thing that would not have been done without anyone else's help, whether that's with them, even just telling me that it was available, just emailing me and say, Hey, you should apply for this or nominating me or giving me their lab space or that you let me use their money or letting me pick their brain. I, I cannot think of a single thing that was done in my own. So so I think that is like a 1 million percent yes for me. Um, you know, and I think people who don't realize that, um, you know, it's really sad because nobody has, has done it all on their own. Even if you just have somebody, you know, a somebody not in your field, you know, who's just cheering you on. I have, for example, I don't know that I told you this story before, Gudo, but one of my very, the very first committee I was on was a women in physiology committee. And Dr. Sue Barman, do you know her? So, okay. She's, she's actually in the same department as Stephanie Watts. So they're, yeah, so they're good friends. Well, I did not know Sue. Of course I've heard of Sue because she's a past president of the American Physiological Society. So she's, you know, she's like, she's APS royalty, right? You hear about her. We were on this task force meeting and I was still sort of getting my feet wet, but my personality is such that I can I usually say what I mean. And in that meeting, I, I think I probably spoke my mind pretty frequently. Oh, well, I'm surprised by that. <laughs> Sarcasm. <laughs> and if you don't know Sue, she does the same thing, exact same thing. So, but Sue was in GI physiology. I mean, she's a pharmacologist. She's in GI. She's a long ways away from me research wise, right? And um, I don't know, I just felt like we, I felt like we connected. So when I went back to my house, I sort of did something crazy. I sent her an email and essentially it said something like, will you be my mentor? Check yes or no. (laughs) (laughs) Check yes or no. back with a yay go team brandy which you know was really really great because she's been like a she's been like a huge cheerleader you know she's written me letters of reference she's read stuff she's you know when you when I go through when you don't get that 50th grant you know she's the one who's like okay that's normal you get today to drink margaritas but tomorrow tomorrow you write another grant right So I think even if that person isn't actively, even if your mentor isn't, for example, actively giving you money to buy an antibody or helping you analyze a cohort of patient samples, that does not mean that that person is not a mentor, right? She was a mentor. She was a mentor in perseverance and how to not give up when you, (laughs) when you get the, you know, the next grant is triage, so to speak. So I, I think, um, I can't imagine I can't imagine where I would be without a mentor. Actually, I think I would. I'd probably be working at a shoe store. Mm-hmm. And hopefully a very good shoe store. But, <laughs> but it probably be a, it probably would be a shoe store. <laughs> and Brandy, like, I, I probably already answered that with your uh, story. But I just want to say if you have, like, any more uh, 
stories to share. So was that your when you realized you need a mentor? Or when was the time that you felt like, oh gosh, I need someone to to guide me through this? Well, I think it, that was a point when I realized I need a lot of mentors. I mean, I had had a lot, you know, and I sort of, you know, you sort of think of until you have that epiphany, you think of mentors as like you put on this hat and you need this mentor and you just keep that same hat for, you know, you just keep it. Right. And I think at that moment, I had this realization that the whole time I'd had all these different mentors, right. I'd had these, you know, I'd had mentors in the lab who had shown me, you know, how to do the experiment. I'd had mentors in the lab who would sort of explain to me, you know, what I did wrong and people, you know, even technicians who would help me, you know, remember how to, how to load samples into a Western blot, you know? So I think I had always had them, but I think at that moment was when I recognized, Hey, you know, I need to actively recruit more mentors. I don't want my other mentors to get burned out because I feel like I'm a little high maintenance. I, I email a lot. I stay in touch a lot. And so I, I thought maybe I should spread the love. And, and I realized that I, I needed more. I needed mentors for different capacities. You know, one mentor to help you read every single word in that grant um, is not the same as the mentor that you need to be like, okay, let's have a day of self-wallowing for that triage and then keep going, right? Those are two different mentors. And it was that day that I realized that I, I needed a lot of them and I'm still recruiting. So, you know, if you hear this podcast and you decide you want to be on team Brandy, you know, feel free to, feel free to send, <laughs> send me an email and I'll respond back. I haven't said no yet. And also too, you know, for a lot of the younger younger wee ones who are listening, you know, don't be afraid to send those emails. I, I, the angst that you have before you send the email, I think I sort of sat and stared at it for like 30 minutes. Like, should I, should I not? And then I deleted it and then I brought it back up and looked at it. And was like, she's going to think I'm crazy. And then I thought, well, she probably already thinks I'm crazy. So what is it going <laughs> to, what is it going to hurt? And then, you know, you send it and it, and it just works out. And if somebody says, no, that's okay too. You know, you have to, it's a mutual symbiotic relationship, right? So, you know, someone doesn't have time in their life right now, or they're going through a lot and they say, no, that's okay too. But as of yet, I haven't had anyone, anyone say no. So. So let's switch then. Let's switch like to people writing you and ask you to be their mentor. So if you say yes, okay. So like, yay, you got a mentee or many different mentees. Uh, how, how is going to be your mentoring style, if you need to describe it? I am definitely of the mothering. I think I'm very, very similar to probably Stephanie Watts' version. I like for my people to have fun and, you know, I, I enjoy them to, to walk in the lab. Um, at one point in time, when I was at Emory, I had um, four, four really great undergrads who were working in my lab and, you know, they had all these aspirations. They were excited and they got excited when they saw things. Look, there really is protein on a Western. Who knew? You know, they just get excited and I would walk in the lab and there were discussions of anthropology's latest cells and shoes and, you know, we would go out to eat. And so I, I definitely think I'm probably of the more nurturing capacity compared to some other mentors, but I think it's just because I, I like to build bonds with people. I'm not a very superficial person. I'm more of like an all or nothing 
either um, I like you or I don't. And that that probably includes with the with the people that I have not had that many. So you probably should ask you know, Stephanie this question if you didn't. Um, but the few that I have had, I, I think I sort of, you know, if I adopt them, like I, you know, I go all in, I check in on them and, you know, send them emails and text messages. And I recently had a surgery and I had a mentee from a past mentee who's now in medical school in Ohio. She actually sent me a gift card. How sweet is that? Like to Sephora, which you don't know what Sephora is, but that's, I know it's makeup. You know, lotion. It's also face lotion. I don't wear a lot of makeup, but as face lotion. Oh, cosmetics. Yeah. Let's say cosmetics. Cosmetics, exactly. So I mean, I, I feel like I really am more of that type of um, long-term commitment, monogamous mentor. Serial <laughs> 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 no, no. monogamy. Yes. No, that's that's good. And Brandy, with like your experiences as a mentee. And now having like different mentees yourself, um, what kind of characteristics do you think you had to have or a mentee has to have, have in order to have a good take from this relationship? Or to really wow. take advantage of it? That's a trick question. You know, I think... You know, I think just like any relationship, some relationships don't work, right? And I think that, um, you know, I, I hate to say attracted, but I'm attracted to mentees who are excited, right? Who are excited about what they're doing. You know, perhaps they don't do it perfectly and perhaps they have, you know, a, a moment where they, you know, maybe they forgot to take the tape off the Western or, you know, or, or maybe they dropped the kidney on the ground or something like that. I'm okay with that. As long as you're excited, as long as you have excitement and you have happiness and joy. Um, so I think for me, um, that would be probably the drive, the, you know, being excited about what you're doing, um, and really interacting with you, with the space around you, the people around you, interacting with me, interacting with the information, you know, really thinking about it. Um, but of course that's not how it is for everyone. Right. So, you know, for my PhD mentor, Clinton, I think he really, I think his main characteristic probably that he would have, um, that he probably really respected was a sense of, of self, self propelling and, um, self propelment and, um, independence, that kind of thing. So I think what makes you sort of work with one mentor does not make you necessarily work with a, another mentor. I mean, obviously I'm still, a, I feel like I'm the same person that I was in PhD. I was probably just as happy um, then as I am now, but I don't think it was that part that helped me to get along with my mentor at that point in time. Right. Mm -hmm. But that for me, that is what is one of the characteristics that you know, um, I feel like I connect with, with my mentees is their sense of excitement and, um, you know, really, really wanting to understand. Mm -hmm. I feel like everything else can be fixed, right? Yeah. I feel like you can learn, you know, everybody, you can learn to understand, you can learn to do the technique, but do you really like it? I feel like that's really the, the big, the big thing. Yeah, I think like you're right. Like the excitement is, is key. Like the uh, the commitment and the, like wanting to uh, to do an Excel. Because I remember like I had like this uh, PhD student 
that um, wanted to come to, to our lab. And uh, he came to me and he was super worried before joining us and being like, listen, uh, I really want to come and work with you guys. But um, it's, it was a pool of like five people. Uh, and then it's like, but from the five, um, not, I probably not the best by better. I probably going to be the one that's going to drop a solution. Uh, I'll, but like, I really, really want to be with you guys. I can learn a lot of you guys. And then I'm, and then I just turned to him and I was like, but who asked you to be the best by better? <laughs> like, you know, like, I, I don't get like why you were worried because yeah. I'd like, if you are with us, aren't you going to try to do your best all the time? And he's like, yeah. Cause like, that's what we need. Right. Like we don't need a star. We need like somebody who's willing to give your, their best. Yeah. Like, these are her best. And I think like, that's more than enough. I, I really think, and I think, you know, sometimes even now, you know, sometimes, and sometimes I'm chatting with you about this, you know, we see people and they're like, oh my gosh, they got this award too. And you know, cough, cough, have all Gudo's papers, cough, cough, like, you know, maybe they're slumming it if they're publishing in a journal that's less than 10. But, um, you know, we look around at the researchers around us and, you know, you sort of have a little bit of, it's sort of like a social media thing, you know, nobody, you know, very few people put on social media, you know, I just had this grant rejected for the 50th time, or, you know, I just ran all the protein in my buffer or, <laughs> or, you know, or I forgot how to calculate standard error. You know, nobody puts that on, nobody puts that on Twitter, right? Everybody puts the good stuff. Yeah. You know, everybody puts all the good stuff. And what they also don't put is they don't put all the people on the side, right? They don't put, for example, all the people who help them, you know, the person who maybe let them use that really fancy equipment or the mentor who, you know, ate a few thousand dollars to let them run their samples with them or, you know, the mentor who read the entire grant. And so I think that a lot of times people see that and they don't really, they don't realize. And, and also too, I'm guilty of that too, of not really making sure that it's known of how many other people chipped in to make it a go not just the people on the slide, but literally even, you know, even just to the janitor who comes and make sure that, you know, we, we clean up after ourselves. Right. So I don't think we do a very good job of that. And I think if we were all more honest about what's happening, I think people would be less stressed about, you know, getting mentors and about needing mentors and that, you know, overall feeling of, I have to do it myself. Right. Mm -hmm. I got this award and I did this and I got it myself. And really that's a fallacy. Every single person up there has an entire army of people that you can't see that has helped them in some capacity. Yeah. You know, even if it's just the bus driver who's, you know, really, really, really on time. And so, you know, we hope that you can find someone, a mentor who can better, you know, hone their skills for the good of helping you get where you want to be. But mm -hmm. everybody has this team. And I think we just do a really poor job of making of making that known, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong if your team has different characteristics, you know, although sometimes they're similar, like maybe, you know, Gudo and I, I think we have very similar personalities. Yeah. So this is why we bicker like a, a, an old couple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I think we're like, you know, uh, old soulmates. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, Brandy, so a lot of people that listen to the podcast, like they are in a phase of their scientific life or their professional life or career. Like, I don't know why I try to define things times, uh, but that's something that I do anyway. So people probably are used to it right now. Um, but like, yeah, so people, they are trying to move. They're trying to get a new job. So they're going, let's say, from Brazil to the States or from Europe to somewhere else in Africa and Asia. So they're changing scenario. So they're going for a postdoc or they're going for a new faculty position, a completely different environment. Um, but before that, you do an interview and you need to try to identify whether that place will be the place for you. What do you have to say for these people? What advice? Because you have done like a few interviews and you had to choose between different places. So what did you use to evaluate if those, which place was the best for you? Wow, that's a loaded question, Guru. Um, well, I would just first say that, you know, people assume that, you know, if you do well in a new place or you adapt or things go well, that you like change. Um, that is not true. Gudo, you sort of froze up a little bit. You there? Yeah, no, I'm sure here you froze too. Okay. Uh, but I, oh yeah, now it's back. Yeah. Okay. Like, I think people assume, you know, oh, this person must be really, really good at change. This person must love change. I hate change. I am all, I am one of those people. I keep the same bedspread on my, you know, on my bed for years because I literally can't part with the idea of having to change a new color. Right. I'm one of those people who keeps the same colors in our living room because she gets so attached to it. The thought of radical change is stressful. I'm <laughs> like, wow, you would kill me because I like to change the furniture and everything <laughs> in my living room all the time to look at it in a different place. <laughs> I, I, I think just the and I think, too, I think it comes down to what we grew up with. You know, I did not grow up with a lot of family that I'm close to. And so. The idea of changing things up when things are good is a very stressful idea for me, like, wow, stressful. So when I was applying for positions, even just for like schools, I remember when I moved for school, that was like super stressful, but just everything. But the most recent was when I was applying for, for new jobs and it was a struggle. I mean, I had to sort of like pep talk myself every day, like, okay, this is good. And this is a good thing. This is what you need, you know, um, Douglas Eaton, he, he was, uh, he's one of my mentors at Emory and, you know, I would come to him, go to him, ask him a question be like, are you sure I'm doing the right thing? He was like, how do you feel? I was like, I feel like I'm going to feel like I'm going to throw up. <laughs> He'd be like, no, no, this is good. If you find something you like, do it. If you don't find anything you like, then that's okay too. Right. And so I, what I found is that, um, you know, I didn't like the idea of change per se, but I would go to these departments and I would meet people and then you just sort of find that you click, right? It's sort of like a mentee mentor, mentor relationship, right? You have that little, that feeling, that spidey sense that says, you know what, I think this is going to work, right? And, you know, you just can't really, you can't really define it. I actually had my nails done last week. And when I was in the nail salon, I was talking with this other girl who was there, who was from New York City. And we were just chatting. And it was so cute because when I left, <laughs> she, when she was getting ready to walk out the door, she's like, you sound like so much fun. And she was like, we should exchange numbers. So we exchanged numbers. And it was just like this sort of like feeling. It's not even like a, 
you know, it's, it's just like a, okay, I think this is going to work out because she sent me a text and said, I think we should be friends. And I was like, oh my God, so cute. That's exactly what I would have said. Right. And I feel like that's sort of how it happened at the university of Utah. Really. I felt like, um, I really connected with the researchers and I just sort of had that feeling I could have, you know what, it could have been indigestion. (laughs) Who knows, but that was a feeling that I had. And then when I came back and you know, I had a really good feeling. It didn't mean that I was excited about moving. It didn't mean that I didn't shed many a tear about having to leave my people, you know, in Atlanta. And it did not mean that I wasn't horribly terrified of the idea of having to, you know, start my own lab in a new place because that's scary. Right. Mm -hmm. But it did mean that I felt that I had made a good decision. I just had that feeling. And I wish there was something more substantial that I could give a better answer, but it just sort of, you know, it just felt right. Yeah, no, but I was just thinking though, like, I think that feeling is, is the key too, because I, I guess like you're more, you're like me too. Like I'm very like, I'm more like, um, you know, many uh, the different types of intelligence, like emotional and rational, it's kind of things like I'm more like emotional and I have to feel stuff instead of like, to mm-hmm. be specifically analyzing things. But did metrics matter to you? Like any sort of metric, like, um, like money <laughs> or like money, publication records or like support, like uh, facilities, like anything that was measurable did matter to you or was just pure gut feeling? You know, well, I am an ENFP. I don't know what you are. Good. Or are you an ENFP? Well, as well, are we the same? Probably. The the Breyers, uh, whatever they call it, the emotion, the uh, personality test. So I do feel with my gut a lot of times, and sometimes my gut is really wrong, but I think a lot of times my gut is is very right. But I, of course, you know, money was important. It was not the highest offer that I got, um, but I felt you know, with my division chief here is um, Dr. Alfred Chung. And I really, really, really felt like he wanted me to succeed. And that was, that was really, um, you know, maybe he changes his mind when I email him questions and he shakes his head. I'm not really sure. But at the moment when I was talking to him, when I was speaking to him, I really, really felt that he wanted me to succeed, that my success was a division success. And so he wanted me to succeed and that he would do everything he could to support that success and that he believed that I could succeed. That was, that was how I felt. So that was the metric that I think that for me was the most important metric is mm-hmm. that, you know, if somebody else has confidence that you can do it, it, it is an automatic confidence builder, right? Mm-hmm. So of course, I kept in mind things, you know, it's different here in the U.S. The, the ideas of tenure, you know, I definitely investigated, you know, how was tenure here and how is it different? And I, I felt like I felt like a lot of the those types of metrics were very, um, you know, very similar between a lot of the institutions. You know, you got to have this many publications and this many grants and this much money. Um, I, I felt like, you know, I was probably going to have an anxiety attack thinking about any one university's metrics. Right. Um, but I really felt like he wanted, he felt that I could succeed and he felt that this would be a good place for me to succeed. And that was the, that was the main metric that I went from. And, you know, I really have to give a, um, a doubt they'll ever hear it, 
but you know, doctors Island Rodan and Nero Ram Kumar, they have just been fantastic, you know, for colleagues. Um, you know, I sort of was joking with someone about, um, you know, how it worked out because, you know, this could have been a disaster. You know, you move right before COVID. What if all the people here were just awful? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would have been stuck in Salt Lake City and it would just have been a disaster. And I was sort of joking with a, a friend of mine. I was like, you know, at a few months ago, I was like, well, I called them friends. And I was like, I don't know. Can I call them friends? I'm sort of trying to bring them into Team Brandy. I'm not really sure. You know, <laughs> we're sort of in the mid. I'm trying to I'm trying to coax them into being closer friends, you know. But I, I really feel like I was really lucky because it, it worked out. It worked out really well. And they're they're really great. So I guess, I guess my gut was was right because I, I think this could have been, I mean, COVID definitely this entire year, couple years have been like apocalyptic for everyone, but it could have been worse. You know, it could have been worse. And I have these colleagues who have let me use their stuff, you know, who've offered, I mean, one of them even offered to let me, you know, have their technicians help with some experiments on my tech, you know, when she, when she quit. So, you know, you can't, you can't have that type of support without the people, right? Yes. So money is important. I mean, there's a minimum amount of money you got to have. There's a minimum amount of supplies you got to have, but after that, it's the people and you got to really trust your, you got to really trust your gut that you're going mm -hmm. into it for the right reason. Because if not, I would have just been twiddling my thumb. I would have just nice. been twiddling my thumbs. It would have been a worse disaster, you know, than it, than it was. I, yeah. I feel really lucky, you know, oh, it's, it's true. Um, <clears throat> so people can see now that you're a very easy person to talk to and you're very welcoming, but not everyone's like that. And, because like sometimes, you know, people want to talk to that uh, Nobel Prize winner or like that uh, senior professor that they admire, uh, but they're afraid of them or the person's a bit intimidating. And you're one of the few people that I know that have like an easy way to approach people and you're not, if you're shy, I didn't know that. And you don't look shy at all. Like you really talk to people it's Really, really easy for you to approach people. So how do you think people, much people should do to overcome that fear of talking to someone and especially when the person is a little intimidating? I can think of a lot of very intimidating people. And, you know, so I, I recognize that. And one person in particular who is terrifying to me, but, um, you know, I do think this is probably one thing that I have a little bit of an advantage. I don't have many advantages in life, but this is probably the one where my personality, um, my personality sort of trumps everything. And the reason why I say that is when I took that Myers-Briggs or whatever they call it, the personality test, we, I took it as a postdoc and I had this entire room. We take this test and write and everybody else has like, you know, like they had this, when they give you a little pamphlet and tell you what your personality is, you know, some people's had like, you know, Watson and Crick on the front or, you know, Teddy Roosevelt or, you know, Nobel laureates. And I get mine and there's a picture of like Drew Barrymore running through the fields with flowers in her hair. <laughs> True story. Right. And the advisor who we took that test would look at me and she's like, this is a very unusual personality for this field. And I actually think that this in this one scenario, not many scenarios, this one scenario where 
that helps. So it's really hard for me to understand that fear because there are people that I'm intimidated with, but you know what? They go to the potty just like everybody else. They have to put their undies on just like everybody else. And at one point in time, they had a zit on their face just like everybody else, right? So you just have to keep, (laughs) you just have to keep that in mind when you're going to talk to them that, you know, they're just a person and they, you know, maybe they came from a lot of money. Maybe they went to Harvard and you went to not a great school. You know, maybe they know the difference in how to use who versus whom, but you know what? It's okay. Cause in the end they're just people. And so I, I think it's hard for me to imagine being terrified to speak to someone, but I have had moments of intimidation because the person was intimidating because they were giving off that, that air of I'm important. And I think what in that point, you just have to suck it up and you just have to like, say, you know what, forget it. I'm going to do it anyway. What's the worst that's going to happen, Right. Worst is going to happen is I'm going to embarrass myself. And then, you know what? I have a new low and I've, I've got a new range for success, right? And it's and a new, a new like funny story for you to tell your friends, right? Exactly. That is, and that is what I tell myself, you know, and it's the same thing when I submit a grant, you know, I, I have that moment and you're like, God, what if this is awful? What if this really sucks? And you're like, well, what's the worst that could happen? It gets rejected. Mm. <laughs> and that's exactly the same thing when you're talking to someone else. But I have to admit that even the ones that look super, super salty, like they had just been eating that pickle all day long. I would say nine times out of 10, they're actually really, really happy to speak with you. They're really, really happy. They're really happy to connect. They're happy to connect to people who are excited about things or happy to, to connect to people who, you know, have a, have a joint interest in something, they're happy to, to make a difference, right? And I would say that most people feel that way. And if you are the unlucky one to find the super salty person, then you know what? Like you said, you have a great story. You know, one day when you're winning the big award, you can talk about that day you had an anxiety attack and you walked up to that person and they, you know, sort of bit your, bit your head off, right? Yeah. But I think that's the outlier. I think that's the you know, that's the outlier of the situation. And, you know, if you're ever at a meeting with me or Gouda, I can tell you that, you know, if you tell us that you want to meet someone, we will prance right up there and we will stick our little noses right in that conversation <laughs> and then waiting for them to, to let us introduce you to them. So it, it won't bother us one bit. I yeah. <laughs> uh, exactly. Have you ever had a situation where, where somebody was super, I can only think of one. I don't want to tell the story because that person might actually listen to this podcast or might actually have a student who was in the podcast. I can remember one time in particular of a very intimidating situation. And I, that it did rock me. Well, no, two times. It was almost for this from two different people, but sort of about the same thing. And it did, it did rock me. And then I just was like, okay, well, you know, compose yourself put your big girl panties on, have a, have a moment. And then, you know what, if you embarrass yourself, you know, you have a story to tell. Yeah. No, like a lot of, you remember, but you yeah. no, no, like this situation, like I think like happens a lot. And I think like there are a few situations. I think what's good for me is that like, I'm very quick on my, I'm like a cat. If you throw me, I'm always going to uh, fall on my feet. Uh, and I'm very quick. So, I, I have this like, desire now to play, to go jump on a trampoline with you so I can see. Or, or, or push me somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah. 
next time we go somewhere, I'm just gonna just give you a little love tap to see if, <laughs> see if you land on your feet. No, but like, um, I'm. I think sarcasm helps uh, my sense of humor. I'm always like human. I guess like the word to me is human. I'm always like, um, I don't need to become the best friend of the person. But I don't know. There's something about me that like, I. I I just face it. I just go with it. Sometimes I'll have a verbal diarrhea. Sometimes I'm going to be very prim and proper. Um, but, but that's it. Like I remember being in a conference once and super excited about presenting this paper to someone in, in a Gordon conference for the NADPH oxidase, the Noxus. And I'm telling you, that Gordon is a stressful one, but in a good sense, because everybody, like the, the cream of crop, I don't know how to say that word, right? But like all the important people they go to the conference so that conference like is loaded and i was in my first one and rian couldn't go that year so i was like a, a young postdoc and i was presenting uh-huh. my poster to this researcher that to me was like oh god i read all those papers and super fan and i was working on ox5 and the person's comment was like oh how did you how did you make this antibody work? Because uh, there's a lot of doubts in these antibodies, especially like the Santa Cruz one. And I'm like, well, I did this and this, like, oh, I did my best. I did, you know, controls and blah, blah, blah. Um, and the person was like, was very sarcastic. And it was very like, oh, so yeah, my technician tried many different antibodies, including this one, and didn't get it. And then my mouth, that's how I start this relationship First of my mouth was like, well, maybe it's time for you to uh, hire a new technician then. <gasps> Good uh, but it just came out with like, it's my <laughs> sass, right? Like I'm sassy, oh I'm God. quick, I'm sarcastic. But to me, it was like, listen, um, <laughs> but I guess my head was like, no, no, <laughs> I'm your fan. I love you. I love your research. But that doesn't give you like the fact that you published like 200 more papers than me and you have a position, all of that. It doesn't give it the right to uh, put me down. Like, I'm super excited meeting you. So don't spoil this moment for me and for you. Like, keep me as your fan. Like, you know, and, and that's what happened. And then after the person came to visit us at the, the KRC, we're still in Ottawa. And then Rian was like, oh, do you remember Guru? And the person was like, mm, I don't know. I was like, oh, no, you do. Remember, like, last year's Gordon, when you came to my post and we had a conversation about an Ox5 antibody? And I could see on the person's eye, shit, yeah, oh, yes, I remember that. But then I was like, how are you? And then I became like, you know, like, I was able to turn that awkward moment on encounter and something that was like, you know, not a joke, but something that was like, hey, like, we're still alive and we still love each other. Like, I don't know, whatever. Something positive out of it. So, yeah, I think like uh, moments like that happen. And you just need to be yourself, I guess. I have a joke though. I usually say, well, depending on the person, I try funny, I try smart, I try sexy, I try, <laughs> I try every single different personality. One of them is going to work. question that all of us are asking ourselves is Gudo, do your multiple personalities, do they have names or do they all go by Gudo? Because 
you know, we need to know <laughs> if we need to call some of these out. Maybe flashcards would be great for, for stickers. <laughs> I need to name them. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, you know, I think those kinds of things is when you, you know, you look, go back and you look and, you know, it's the same thing. I, I remember telling that, that one professor, you know, at ECU at Brody, I remember telling him something like, um, I can't remember how I put it, but something, something like you, you'll regret not hiring me. And like, right this moment, I recognize how stupid that was because, you know, I didn't, I barely know how, knew how to calculate molarity at that time. Right. And it wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> like, and he worked with radioactivity and just NERTS potential equations. Like I didn't even know what NERTS was at that point in time. Right. And I remember he sort of looked at me and it was sort of like, a, I can't believe she has the cojones to actually <laughs> say that. Yeah, you won't regret, but like, don't ask me to yeah, prepare a solution. Just, exactly. <laughs> so you just go. So I think it's a point of, you know, just do it. Just do the best you can. I, I also had someone who was a little, a little too salty for my taste at a poster one time. And after that, after that one time, that was the last time I let it rock me. I don't know that I've ever actually said what you said but I definitely I feel like after I after that moment I sort of had like this little come to Jesus like okay you know what okay so this person was rude and difficult and you know overall just a real jerk but you know I had a good time and the next time that happens I'm just gonna sort of I like I don't hear them and make them repeat it over and over and over again until somebody comes to my rescue you know so I, I, I think we all have it. And I think these kinds of stories are really good because, you know, maybe if you're a, a little one coming up along and you see a Guto Montezano at the meeting and you want to go talk to him and you're so worried because he looks so important and he's hanging out with <laughs> all the Anna Domenicheks and Rianne's of the world. And you're like, can I talk to him? And you're so, so scared. And then you hear this podcast and you hear that he told somebody else to get a new technician. <laughs> and then you're no longer scared, right? Oh, yeah. And I remember in that meeting, like, uh, after at the end they always have like a presentation summing up everything and can you believe that like uh the antibody that i was using was one of the topics for people to be careful with the antibodies i felt like not attacked but singled out well, and, okay. and that was like by someone that was an idol or no it's true is like um, at the time it was an idol to me and i'm like i was like that i left the conference devastated i'm like I cannot believe that this happened. But look, did it change? No. Now I talk to the person and we have like a good relationship. And you probably and published that paper in Circa Research or, or actually did. Actually or did. New England <laughs> Journal of Medicine or something like that. See, that's what I tell everybody. The best answer to people that treat you badly is it's success. Succeed. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And as I say, if they're not good to you, they're rude to you and everything is already like a sign that you don't need that person in your life. So move on, like go to the brandies, you know. Life is too short. Life is too short to deal with people like that. That's yeah. for sure. So <laughs> just imagining all the little people looking around saying, I really want to talk to Gudo. I really want to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I get awkward, guys. So uh, get used to me. Get used to my <laughs> Brazilianness and my, my craziness. What did you call it? Uh, 
mouth the diarrhea. What did you call it? Oh, verbal diarrhea. <laughs> oh, isn't that a saying? I thought it was a saying. Like Milton tells me a lot. That. Like you know, you you have verbal diarrhea all the time. I've only heard I've only heard something similar to that when I was in band in high school. I just may be very difficult for you to understand. I played the flute. I was on the front row. My feet didn't touch the ground. So they were constantly swinging and they didn't swing in tempo because I don't know. I just, something's wrong with me, I guess. I was not really talented as a, as a musician. That's for sure. Well, the front row, so the band team, that's the only, there's only been two people that I've ever heard use that. And you're, you're the second one. Hey, Mr. Stevens, if you're listening, um, he, he threw that baton at me and told me I had diarrhea of the mouth and look what happened. Now I have a job where pretty much I talk. <laughs> Which is good. Exactly. 50% of the day. Exactly. It's a good thing. So now, Brandy, like going back to like, <laughs> you know, like change the subject now uh, and talking a little bit about diversity and inclusion. Uh, what, in your point of view, what's the biggest problem in terms of diverse, diversity and inclusion, not only in our career development, but also like in hypertension research? Wow. Another so, loaded question. That's a really <laughs> loaded question. You know, I'm sort of, sometimes I get a little scared about wading into that pool because, you know, everybody is full of opinions and, um, you know, I think that all these opinions are valid, you know, um, about what's most important, but I think my opinion, I actually think the most important thing to realize is that you don't know what was in someone else's shoes. Um, you know, for example, you may be looking at someone and they have a disability and you don't know it. Right. Or you may be speaking with someone and, you know, maybe they just went through something really hard. Maybe a family member just passed away or they had a surgery or maybe you're speaking to someone else about, you know, in a lab and, you know, they, um, you know, they don't have any family or maybe this person you can see their um, what, you know, that they're a person of color. Right. But they also have other things. So I, I think for me, the most the thing that we're missing is empathy. I think that we're, we're missing the big pot of empathy and that we, we only are trying, so many of us only see things, um, you know, from our, our one very, very narrow point of view. And I think what we need is actually more people to speak up, but to speak up with caring and to speak up with empathy, not to speak up with, you know, this is my point of view and it's the only way, right? Because, you know, I see a lot of point of views. I don't have to agree with them. But their point of view is valid because that's that's where they came from. That's their background. That's what shaped their worldview, right? So telling them they're wrong or telling them, you know, that this is that or that's this, that's not really going to help the situation because that's that's their point zero. That's their baseline, right? So I, I think the biggest thing we need is we need voices, but we need voices with empathy, voices that actually are willing to listen to someone else, even when they disagree with it and say, how can we best move forward? And, and how can we help everyone? Um, because, you know, science is a, it's a boat, right? And people, we, you know, so many of us think about it, well, you know, this one award or this one paper, or cough, cough, Gudo has 150 papers in circuit research or, you know, or 
<laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> you know, we think about things, that, but it's not, it's not a pie, right? It's mm. not someone else's success does not take away from, from your success. There's not a unlimited, it's not, there's not a finite amount of success out there. And I think if we sort of think about things in a more, you know, empathetic and a more um, caring way, we would, we would actually get further. You know, if we mm. listen to people's voices, we invited them to the table, we listen to their voices, but we also listen to it knowing that everybody has a different background. And sometimes you don't even realize that that's a possible background until you hear somebody say it, right? Maybe you, maybe you, it never even occurred to you that that could happen to someone or that was an experience until you hear them say it, right? And so I think having these voices, but having people say it without this, um, you know, we've, we've become to yell at each other instead of talk with each other that I feel like that's, that's become the norm. And so I feel like that's really what we're missing is having these people, having everyone from all these different backgrounds, you know, really explain what their background is and why, why are they going at it? Like they are right. And I think until we have these conversations, it's not gonna, you know, nothing's going to change. And I also think all this like vitriol that we have, it's a, it's a very dangerous thing. There's a lot of it, you know, we're to call out hype hit the hypertension, high impact um, papers that actually Gouda was the leader on that. Um, you know, but I, I do help out a very modest amount. And so before I was never really on Twitter, but now that I'm on Twitter, I sometimes sort of, you know, become a little bit of a voyeur and look at some of these conversations and the way people talk to, to everyone it's just a, it's, it's really astonishing. And so I think a little bit more empathy and willingness to, to hear another side, you know, mm -hmm. and if you really feel strongly that the other person is wrong, then, you know, um, my grandmother used to say, you know, you catch a lot more bees with honey than you do, you know, with vinegar. So, you know, try to bring them in to, to help, help them to understand versus, you know, just sort of, you know, biting someone never, never got you anywhere. Right. Yeah, and it'll no, definitely right. get you a timeout in academia. And I just had like an interview last week, last Friday. It was in the main, one of the like, great interviews from the podcast. And uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Masuki actually the interview. And then she mentioned that um, the problem is people have, people don't know how to merge agendas. Each one has your own agenda and everyone wants to force their own agenda. And people don't know how to talk merge those agendas. And I, I, I thought it was an amazing concept, an amazing description of what generates this uh, problem because people don't want to listen. I, can I change my answer? I would like no, you know, I think merge with your answer. Like the, uh, <laughs> her answer is really good. Can I, can I take her answer? <laughs> no, but it's, it's what you're saying, right? So the fact that people don't, uh, don't listen to each other or don't want to merge the agendas because they don't have empathy. I'm not able to understand your side because I, I, I'm so focused and so self-involved on my agenda that I can't see other things. It's those comments, right? Like, oh, there's no problem with gender. There's no problem with uh, uh, people of color. There's no problem with women. Like, you're just blind. Like, you know, you've been blind for your entire life and you're refusing to open. Like, and actually seeing that there's a problem, it doesn't mean you're it. It means like you're trying to make changes. You're trying to uh, bring positivity 
to the, the picture. So why shouldn't you? No, I agree. I think it's, you know, the way that we talk to each other and, you know, probably if I told my life story to, to someone else, they would never know that that was my life story, just like I would never know it's their life story. And that's, that's what molds our entire, our entire point of view, how we attack problems, how we handle disasters, how we handle happiness, how we, how we trust, <laughs> you know, that, that is, that is everything. And I think we've, I think as a society, we've done a really craptastic job actually in general of trying to get people to talk to each other. But, you know, I notice a lot of that. And I think it's really amplified on places like Twitter. Like you said, like they're not merging. This is the, this is the only thing we should think about is how to do this. And that's great, but that doesn't help the other person. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, that unwillingness to, like she said, merge, merge opinions, merge ideas, merge, you know, just sort of accept that there's multiple paths and multiple ways. And, you know, yeah. I, I just don't, I don't know how you fix it, <laughs> but, um, you know, the, I, I agree with her. I think that's a really important thing that we've missed. The, I really think it has to do with the me, me, me thing, the whole, like, let's, you know, everything is about me, but, um, you know, maybe, I don't know, I could be wrong, but that's yeah. just, just my opinion. So, so now like focusing one specific, uh, let's say problems, which is the leaking pipeline for women in, uh, in research in general. So the ISH is very concerned about that. And Rianne, when she was president, she created the Women in Hypertension Research. Uh, now that's led by Musha. So if you think about women in research, what kind of advice to give to them uh, in order for them to not leave research and continue with their career? You know, I wish I could say that it was just one thing, but, uh, you know, with so many other things, I mean, look at what's happening in Afghanistan. I mean, look at what happens here in the U.S. We have a limited amount of maternal leave. I see so many stories on you know, Twitter about, you know, a student didn't, you know, they didn't have the ability for maternal leave. And even the NIH just stepped up last week, I think, and changed the policy where they would essentially merge um, leave of absences for family with like COVID, right? So, so many of these policies are outside of the woman or the person, right? And I think that's really the issue is that, you know, so much of it is really outside of your control. So I think that's really where mentorship comes in. I I don't think that we can fix the leaky pipeline. I think that the leaky pipeline has so many holes in it. It's like impossible to fix it. But I think what you can do is you can, you know, find mentors around that are like little band-aids. Okay. So I don't know how to handle this. You know, let me find, I have, but I have this really great mentor who's, I don't know, got five kids and maybe she can help explain to me how she, how, how does she even wash her socks, right? With five kids in a research career. I used to always wonder that about Hita Tulsa. It's like, she's traveling everywhere and giving all these talks. And yet she's got this young child who's not young anymore. Livia, I think is taller than I am. But, you know, I used to always think that. And then I recognize that she took Livia with her right? How wonderful is that? She would take her on trips. Livia had more stamps on her passport by the time she was probably six than, than most of us combined. And so I think that the leaky pipeline, I don't think we fix it. I think it's a society issue. I think the best we can do is, is really help each other, right? I mean, the same way, like I email Gudo and I say, Gudo, I need help with this grant. I need some data. 
and, you know, working with Dylan and Gudo and we're trying to get a grant going and Dylan's like, oh, that's okay. I'll just send you some samples that that is what fixes a leaky pipeline, those kinds of things. Now, full disclaimer, I don't have any kids and I wash my own socks, but if I did have kids, that would probably be a huge help for me. Right. So if I was in the, I mean, I might be leaky for another reason, but I think it's those types of things, those types of support systems that are going to get you through. I don't know that we can fix the societal issues, but I really think just being better stewards of um, your resources, of of just being better people. I, I really think that's what it boils down to. You know, somebody emails you when they want your grant, you know, don't be a jerk, send them your grant. <laughs> you know, you got a grant and somebody else wants to read it because they want to get ahead and they want to see what a good grant is. You know, don't be a butt, send them your grant, let them read it. You know, um, you have people actually Richard Wainford, you know, he's also offered samples to me, you know, you need something, ha- you know, have people like that. Um, you know, who, who all be, you know, offer somebody some tissue, you know, offer, offer to add somebody to your graph pad prism subscription because they don't have any money for a grant that I think that's really how we fix it. We just sort of hold a handout and try to pull, you know, pull the other people along when we can. And then when we need help, you know, hope that there's somebody ahead of us who, you know, who has their handout and is willing to, you know, to pull us along. So I really, I think it comes down to, to mentors, right? And so if one of my students or one of my mentees was asking me, you know, hey, I need this. If I don't have an answer for them, you know, I, I find someone who can help them essentially. And, and I think that, that's our job. And that's how, I think that's how we fix the pipeline or at least bandage it up temporarily. I don't think we can fix it, but at least put a little, put a little sticky tape around the sides and just hope that it it holds, it fills back up. That, and, that's um, just my- and I'm assuming here, but uh, but you can add more if you want to. I guess like that would be your answer for the next question about COVID, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. So just like you, that's our last question for the interview and, and for this chat. And you know that COVID has hit many of us with like lab closures and enlisted. Uh, and I, I was interested to know, what do you think we can do better to support any um, the young, re- the junior researchers during this pandemic, and I guess like pretty much going to be help each other. Right? I think I think that really that's really what it is about. I, you know, of course, my background is here. I'm in the U.S., and um, you know, there's a lot of talk about you know extensions for tenure, and extensions are great, but extensions not helpful if I don't have any money, right? So having someone, you know, like, for example, Niru Ramkumar, who's in my division, and she's, she's let me use her equipment that I wasn't able to purchase, you know, during COVID. She's let me use that equipment. Um, you know, Doug Eaton has let me use things, you know, I've collaborated with people like, you you know, with you and Dylan, you know, Dylan's offered to send samples to me, even, you know, um, even people that I'm not as close to, um, like Dr. Kurt Sigmund, he actually offered to, to send, you know, let me know if I need anything to, to ask him. So I think, I think really just if you're in a, if you're in a time and there's a situation you can, you can help someone. I, I really think that's the, the best way. I don't think there's any, you know, one answer. Right. And I think that's what it is, is that every, you know, all these, uh, you know, the NIH, everybody's looking for this one answer. How do we fix this? And I, I don't think it's one thing. I think it's just making, 
if everyone was a little bit nicer and a little bit easier to get along with and a, a little bit more cognizant of how they can help the person next to them, I actually feel like a lot of these problems wouldn't exist, right? Um, but that that could be my ENF, you know, ENFFP running through the fields with daisies in my hair type type of mentality. But that that's just how I feel. I feel like if you emailed me and you're like, wow, I I really need this you know, I, I just send you an antibody, <laughs> you know? So I, I think you have to really, you know, you, you have to do that. And I, I try to put my money where my mouth is and, you know, and, and help people when, you know, uh, okay. So their mentor doesn't agree with this experiment. That's okay. We'll do it for you. You know, I have one of my students, we'll do the experiment for you and check it out. If it works, you can go to your mentor and say, Hey, look, my hypothesis works. Can I move forward? And I feel like those are the little things that I can do um, so I, I think the answer for COVID is, is the same thing as for the leaky pipeline, just have people that are willing to, you know, give a hand up essentially. And, you know, that whole bootstraps thing, you know, bootstraps are only good if you actually have a boot and a strap. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who are in positions a lot worse than I am, and maybe they don't have a boot to pull up. Um, actually full disclosure, I don't know what a bootstrap is, but it's a really common term here used in the U S but it sounds like it's two things, a boot and a strap. And so that's why I say, I, I feel like, um, and for those of you who can't see Gouda was laughing hysterically. So that's why I'm having a hard, he's, that's why I'm having a hard time keeping focus. I'm hoping, but, um, I'm hoping that's something appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> I don't no. know what it is as well, but like, I'm like, oh, please be something. Well, have you heard, I mean, I'm sure you've heard that term, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And I just had this epiphany. I don't really know what that is. I need to Google what a bootstrap is, but just saying that the person next to you, maybe they don't have anything to pull up. So, you know, you might have to give them a boot and then somebody else give them a strap and then maybe they can, you know, pull it together. Like so I really, exactly. I really think it's a, you know, I think it's a, it's comes back down to the empathy thing and to not feeling like if you help somebody next door, that it's taking away from your own personal success, right? That it's mm -hmm. not a, it's, you know, it's not a pie and you don't lose out. If somebody else is successful, it doesn't make you, make you a loser, so to speak. So you're right. I feel like all three of those have the, the same answer. I'm going to listen to somebody else's podcast because I feel like somebody came out with a better answer and I'm going to be jealous. But oh, it's all good. Everybody can give different answers and they're all good. I think they're very inspirational for people. Brandy. Yes. And now, and now that's your time. Can you tell us what the NIC or the, the investigators committee uh, is doing to promote the East cars? Well, we are doing a lot of stuff. And I say we is in the royal we, because in reality, really, it's not me. Really, I have a really, 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 and add 10 more really fabulous team of committee members who what they want is they want you to succeed, right? They want you to move ahead. They want you to be happy and to love your job. And they want to help you get to that point. And so what we're doing is we're really trying to develop programs to one, to give the new investigators a voice to showcase their work, especially during COVID. I feel like it's really hard right the second to have your work being shown, you know, going to virtual meetings. I know that it's the best that we can do, but it's awful for networking. It's like the worst for like the young ones. 
So, you know, having these opportunities for your work to be showcased, right? So the new investigator spotlight, the words of wisdom. If you have something really cool and sexy, you want to tell other people how to do contacts us and we will, we will feature you and you will go to everybody's inbox at that month when, um, when the spotlight goes out, you know, we're also trying to um, develop programs that will help new investigators to meet new people. You know, a lot of these programs are in collaboration with um, Gudo and um, uh, Francine's, uh, you know, mentoring and training, mentoring and training committee, as well as a women of hypertension committee. You know, we're developing these programs like the hypertension summer school programs, the ish cafe, so you can learn more. Um, these also these ish lives who develop some type of sense of networking in between um, during times of, of pain and suffering and sorrow like COVID so we can sort of come together. Um, and we're also trying to engage with you more. I don't know if um, the listeners have actually looked at Twitter, but if you have, you'll notice that we all tweet more and we really want you to tweet us back. There actually are people behind those little Twitter birds and they actually want to talk with you. But if you don't respond back to us, then there's nothing for us to talk about. So, you know, get involved, you know, retweet, ask us questions. And, you know, we really want to hear your opinion about how, how can we better help you? How can we better serve the community? And, um, you know, really give back. I think um, I can only speak for myself, but I think Gudu will probably be included. I think we were really lucky in that we had really well-known, really well-networked mentors who really helped us get ahead. And I think that what we're going to do is we're just trying the best we can to give everyone else a, a, an opportunity as well. So if you have good suggestions, um, you can email Gudo and Gudo can filter them and send them to me, or you can email me and then we will get back in touch with you and try to try to figure it out. And lastly, we are also working with a lot of local societies, um, like for example, the Brazilian Hypertension Society um, that we just had a, a meeting with, um, just trying to work with these local regional societies to see what you need, sort of like a boots on the ground type situation, um, you know, to see what what's happening regionally, what's happening in Brazil is not the same as what's happening in the US or what's happening in the UK. And so trying to, trying to figure out what does this region need that's different and so we can only work with that if you talk to us and, and let us know what you need. So that's really what we're doing. Uh, a little slow because of COVID, but we're, we're doing the best, doing the best that we can. Um, and we have really great committee members. So please reach out to them if you have any you know, suggestions. And, you know, if you send me an email in a different language, I'm going to find somebody else to read it. So please don't worry. Or if you even send it in English and you feel like you don't know how to use that Oxford comma, don't worry about it. I don't either. So just send it to me. And we'll find someone else to, to help you out. So Brandy, with that, like, I just want to say, like, thank you very much for being giving us this time and uh, chatting with me. And uh, I look forward to uh, talk more in a later point. Thank you so much. Thank you, Gudo. It'll be great to see you in person soon. Thank you for listening to our interview. If you'd like more tips on mentoring, subscribe to our podcast for more interviews with senior and emerging leaders. Stay safe, open-minded and kind.